Hello folks, this is Champs at the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max. Welcome to episode one of our podcast. Mark and I are podcasting novices. We were still figuring things out when we made the original recording of this episode. As you will hear, we hadn't even settled on our podcast name. With that in mind, I'm recording this brief intro by myself to give you a sense of what our podcast is going to be about and why we're recording it. So Mark and I are lifelong friends. We met in elementary school and have known each other for more than 20 years. We both like to read books, listen to books, and talk about books. For years, we've been talking on a near-weekly basis, and our conversations often revolve around the books we are reading at the moment. Our podcast is our way of bringing those conversations to a wider audience, and to a marketplace that is definitely, definitely not oversaturated with similar content. We have no special literary qualifications. I'm a high school and college dropout. Mark at least is an Ivy League grad, so I guess he has some intelligence. But I'm just a schmuck who likes to read. Each episode of our podcast will focus on a single book that we've both read. We'll be shifting between fiction and nonfiction. These are going to be books that we both enjoyed and would recommend reading. And yes, there will be spoilers. For episode one, we are talking about a book of nonfiction, SPQR by Mary Beard. Spoilers, Rome Rises and Rome Falls. Or maybe it doesn't. So without further ado, I'm sending you to the original recording of our episode. Mark is introducing the book. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the tentatively titled Time Murder Podcast uh, with Max and Mark. You can come murder some time with us. Uh, Today we are talking about SPQR by Mary Beard. It's a one-volume history of ancient Rome spanning the time from when Rome was founded, or I mean it probably wasn't founded, but whenever Rome started, which is traditionally 753 BCE, until 212 uh, CE, when Caracalla extends citizenship to all free inhabitants of the Roman Empire. And Mary Beard is a professor of classics at Cambridge. She's uh, very respected in her field, but manages to write in a really uh, accessible way. Yeah, I guess I would just add in terms of the book, I mean, it's, it's roughly chronological. She, she begins by talking about um, the Catiline conspiracy with uh, Cicero and Catiline. And uses that as a way to uh, sort of talk about some broader themes of Roman history. But then after that point, she goes back to the founding of Rome and sort of what we can and cannot know about uh, when Rome was founded and what the, what that early settlement might have been like. And then takes you chronologically up until, like Mark said, 212 um, CE. Yeah. So she calls it like, you know, it's roughly the first millennium of the Roman Empire. And it is interesting in that. It starts with, you know, sort of kings and then gets to the republic and then turns into an empire and then you get emperors. Yeah, I guess also another thing about the way she frames the book is um, she makes a point of that it's it's a book about the rise of Rome, not the fall. Um, you know, yeah, you don't get into the later centuries when the sort of Roman authority 
uh, collapses around the world. Um, yeah, which I think she, 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 yeah, she sort of contests that idea itself, but yeah. Right. So yeah, I think, so so something that she does a lot in the book that I really enjoy is that she will give the standard account, the kind of like Edward Gibbon traditional version of some event in Roman history or some aspect of ancient Rome. And then we'll start questioning if that's really the case and we'll, you know, really dig into the evidence of why people thought that and if it's true or not. I mean, in many cases, people thought that because it was the historians of Rome, you know, Roman historians who were documenting things maybe 50 years later, even contemporaneously. And uh, previously, I think historians like Gibbon would have taken them more or less at their word. And then now you know, she sort of asks, well, you know, they obviously have their own biases. How credible are they? What can we take as fact? What, what, what isn't fact? Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the kind of critical thinking or critical analysis and also getting a view into what scholarship about Rome looks like right now. Cause I imagine that's also what a lot of her more academic, uh, you know, work looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she has this line, um, like in reference to Gibbon, is that you know it's kind of a mistake to think that we're better historians um, than you know folks like Gibbon writing a few hundred years ago. Um, but it is the case that you know as historians today, we ask we ask different questions of the evidence, um, and maybe are a bit more um, a bit more hesitant to sort of accept things on face value or yeah. accept you know. That just because there is an account written, you know, maybe roughly around the time of the events that took place doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that they have any particular validity. Um, right. But it's also a mistake to, you know, just dismiss out of hand, you know, earlier scholarship um, or just to, you know, make the assumption that we're, oh, you know, in the 21st century, we're so much smarter than um, ancient historians or in the case of, you know, given, uh, um, you know. I don't know, you know what period of English history that is. English, yeah, 18th English century, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, and in, in to that point, a lot of the questions that modern historians are interested in asking are about life for people other than elite men that, you know, most of the primary sources we have come from senators, people like Cicero, emperors, you know, Julius Caesar writes stuff, uh, you know, various kind of high level Greek slaves or tutors write things. Uh, but she she asked questions about what was it like to be a slave? What was it like to be a woman? What was it like to be like a normal person uh, in Rome? And I think that is both indicative of, you know, broader audiences and broader, uh, more inclusion in scholarship that, you know, the 21st century, we care about different things than people did before. Um, and is also just really interesting to read because, yeah, we because we do care about those things. It, it's a unique uh I think contribution that the book has relative to some other histories of Rome. Yeah, I think um, yeah something that she something that she says is that um, you know there's this kind of common lament um, that you know wouldn't it be nice if we knew more about sort of ordinary Roman life or ordinary uh, ordinary Romans? Um, but a a she says that you know in fact we have a lot of evidence. Um, we have more, you know, sort of evidence, more writings than any one individual could actually master in their lifetime. Um, and then B, it's sort of a, 
anachronistic. I'm not quite sure if that's the right word, but this idea that, um, you know, it's just sort of a, a, a fact that most of the writing was produced by, by men and by, you know, the literate sort of class of right. people, which was a very, very select, you know, group of individuals. So almost by default, like the, that kind of evidence that you might get is just going to be biased in that sense. Now, what we can do is we can reconstruct, you know, from, she talks about like a, a, cess, a cesspit, right? Mm -hmm. That gives you evidence of like what. Right. The they like dug like up a cesspit in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or more ordinary Romans and, and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, she, she, she sort of pushes back on that notion that, um, A, that we don't have a lot of evidence for what we, what we know or we think we know about Roman life. And B, that, um, you know, even if we could unearth all the evidence that there was, that there would necessarily be, you know, lots of writing by, say, ordinary Romans just because they weren't doing that, you know, in sure. their sort of ordinary lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think she does a good job of weaving together different pieces of evidence, like archaeological evidence or right. uh, the inferences you can make from writings that, you know, contemporaries... Uh, that are left to us from contemporaries about those people, you know, like obviously you have to try to de-bias them as much as you can, but insofar as they're reporting basic facts, uh, those could be reliable and then you can infer, okay, what do those basic facts tell us if we ignore all the commentary? Um, and she, and then she does, she does focus sometimes on particular, uh, you know, cases where there is a lot of evidence. So this is, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that she spends a lot of time on Cicero because Cicero's work is so well preserved that we have all these kind of aspects of ordinary life that are in his letters so that when she talks about finances or slaves or marriages, a lot of her source material is whatever Cicero had to say about arranging his daughter's marriage or his own marriage or his slaves or his various properties and houses and how he acquired them or sold them or what happened with them. Um, and I think... I was just gonna say, yeah, she says that Cicero is basically the um, we can know the most about, uh, like, of ancient individuals. He's the one. He's the individual that we can know the most about because so much of his writing is preserved. Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, I think, I think she does a good job of using that limited material to come up with a pretty good description of what life was like. Uh, I mean, it does feel in some ways like a limitation, and not being a scholar of Roman history, I don't know to what extent you know, there really is just nothing else to work with. Or if she, by choosing to focus on Cicero, then, um, you know, didn't have room for or missed out on some other primary sources. Um, but it is, I mean, you end up feeling like it's, I don't know, maybe like a third of biography of Cicero. Uh, like you learn a lot about Cicero and his particular circumstances in a way that, you know, you just don't learn that much about other people. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that could be a, I don't know, a potential critique of her book. Yeah, so I think, I mean, on that point of Roman exceptionalism, they obviously are exceptional insofar as they conquered the known world and some other society did not do that. And I think her, her argument is that they are not, it's not because they were, you know, stronger or tougher or whatever it was. Uh, but there are things about their the way their society was structured that did lead them to, uh, you know, be more successful in military conquest than other societies, I think. Mm -hmm. What she says is that, you know, they 
when they conquered new peoples, they required them to provide conscripts. Like they didn't, at least initially, they didn't have a lot of onerous taxation. The main thing was, okay, we've conquered you. Now you have to supply our army. And so that gave them just access to bodies in a way that other societies didn't. And she says at this point in time, more or less who wins the battle is just who has the bigger army, which I think in, I mean, a lot of cases is essentially true. There's like only so much clever strategy you can use to like overcome overwhelming odds. Right. Particularly at that sort of point in the military history. Right. There's not a lot of technology. You can't do, you know, you're not setting like bombs or I don't know. Like yeah. like most most soldiers are roughly yeah. equivalent it, I mean, to each anything, other. Yeah, she she pushes back on the notion that you know she says that you know things like uh, you know battles from the Punic Wars are you know supposedly studied by you know modern uh, <laughs> by modern militaries and you know modern military tacticians. Well, and, you know in reality, um, there weren't a whole lot of tactics going on in these right. battles. Like the the best tactic would be, be to, would be to mainly or would be to maybe get like part of your forces behind the enemy and thereby right. surround them. And that yeah. was pretty much it. Yeah, having um, having spent some time when I was younger reading a lot about Alexander the Great, it's like you flank them and or you try to drive a wedge between their line to split them up, in which case you're basically just trying to flank them internally. Like you're trying to create a division so you can get around their side. Uh, but yeah, like that, I mean, it's not that complicated. It's hard to do, but... And, and a lot of, you know, the specifics of the terrain or whatever, but the Romans weren't any better at that than anyone else. Yeah, I mean, she, yeah, what she says, yeah, she says that, you know, Romans were not more belligerent than their neighbors, and that they didn't enter a world that was, you know, peaceful by any means. So it was sort of like endemic violence, and it began, you know, as like, uh, (laughs) what would probably be better thought of as like uh, kind of cattle raids, or, you know, just like small-scale skirmishes, and like the first major conquest, the conquest of a, it's just 10 miles away from rome right right? so we're talking about very close but there is you know she says that there's a shift right um after like the 290s when suddenly rome is expanding much further out and it suddenly has access to much more manpower than it did previously and you do finally get to you know the point where you have tens of thousands of troops engaged in battle versus just you know maybe hundreds yeah and i don't remember does she does she say what triggers that shift uh i don't think so i think it's more just uh i mean i don't think there is a single turning point i think it's like sometime after the latin and the samnite wars right um which is like the 340s to the 290s before you get to sort of the punic wars against uh carthage um and it's just a matter of like slowly you know incorporating more territory extending roman citizenship um and again like you were saying the key um, the sort of the one stipulation that the Romans imposed on their enemies was that they had to supply them with uh, um, with men for their armies. Yeah. yeah, and it's like that very basic sort of institutional structure that then gives them what they need. I mean, you know, you, you read kind of similar things about like European powers and how like, you know, one one country just had like a slightly better taxation system and that just gave them more money and so they could get more men and then they could win more wars um sure and... or yeah i mean like even like in like the napoleonic age the idea of like the levy on mass that the uh like that you um you you grant more rights to citizens um but in return you make it that uh 
more of them are available for conscription. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing, and this this may not be unique to Roman society relative to the other societies that were around them, because a lot of them were pretty militaristic. But it is true that military success was crucial to political success. Is that you know, like they would have these triumphs, and that having a triumph was you know one way of getting your name out there. That people would like you more. You could then be elected to various offices. Um, and then also like revenue, both both private revenue and the state's revenue were more or less dependent on conquering new lands. And so they just structured things in such a way that their incentives were always to like go out and find somewhere new to take over. Uh, and then they gave themselves the manpower to, to get that done. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of a theme, you know, it's, oh, it's funny, but, uh, you know, it's interesting that you have this Republic, right. And, you know, it's super belligerent because the sort of, one of the keys to being a successful politician or to being successful in politics in ancient Rome was to be uh, a military leader of some sort to have a, you know, to have a conquest. Um, and there's a, there's a way in which, like, once you get to the imperial stage of Rome, um, there's actually less fighting uh, because there isn't this sort of competitive nature, like, between consuls trying to outdo one another. Um, and sort of gain military glory and uh, thereby political success. Right. Yeah, I mean, so we talked a little bit about, like, the citizenship, but that's one of the most important aspects of how they incorporate new peoples. And it's interesting that, I mean, she talks a lot about how the kind of founding stories of Romulus and Remus or of Aeneas, which are contradictory, are, like, you know, almost certainly not true. That I mean, she, she talks at length about how those founding myths are important and tell us things about sure. what Romans cared about. Sure. Yeah, um, and the fact that Romans continually debated, you know, their sort of founding myths and, like, kept on retelling them and arguing arguing over them and what they meant. Yeah, one, one of the most interesting bits there that I think surprised me was that they still had like Romulus's supposedly old house in the form that you could go <laughs> yeah, visit, right. yeah. which feels like such a modern idea, you yeah, know, that you like, like make very it... kitschy kind of, like, Oh yeah. You know, like, like go see, uh, where, where George Washington, exactly. Down the cherry yeah. Tree sort of yeah it's like, it's like <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's log cabin is still there. Right. And like, okay, like we all know it's not really his log cabin, right? you know, if you think <laughs> about it, but like it's still a place you, you think about and go to and that like represents something important for the country. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so supposedly Romulus founded Rome. He wanted to make a city and the way he got people to come to make a city with him was by offering citizenship to anybody. And so supposedly the first set of people that showed up were all kind of like vagabonds and, uh, you know, sort of outcasts from other societies, thieves and whatever else. Yeah. And there, there are later Romans that sort of send up the sort of pretensions of the uh, Roman nobility because, you know, their argument is that, well, if, if you take our founding myth seriously, we all just came from, you know, cattle thieves. And, right. You know, yeah. Having ha- sort of refuse of the world. Have, having like really ancient lineage in Rome, like can't be that good of a thing. Like right. better to have come from Greece and like be descend- descended from like, I don't know, sure. whatever else. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it, this is another way in which Rome is exceptional is their willingness to grant citizenship to other people. And I think that enabled them to have a sustainable empire that you, you conquer people, but then you grant them citizenship. Uh, and in a way it felt a lot, I mean, it, it reminds me of 
the United States, right? That one of our kind of unique characteristics is that it's a place where you can come and it's not that hard to get citizenship. And being American isn't really about being born here or being any particular ethnicity in the same way that, you know, like being Danish generally means you're like ethnically yeah, Danish and from Denmark. Or I think that's, that's, that's less true as immigration increases in some of those countries as well. But yeah. that's kind of the premise of, yeah, of the United yeah. States. Yeah. So, so if you compare it to a very homogeneous society like Japan, for example, where they have yeah. basically, it's impossible, almost impossible to become a sort of naturalized citizen. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Although, you know, I guess in a similar way, it's also, it's easy to make it a bit too simplistic that like, okay, one of Rome's great strengths was that they were continually extending citizenship, you know, first to the Latins, then to the Gauls, then, you know, on and on and on. Um, and likewise, you could sort of tell the same story about the United States, um, you know, extending citizenship to the Irish, um, and then on and on and on. But then you also have, you know, periods of time, like in, you know, the United States history where... Um, we were excluding, you know, populations, the Chinese, for example. Um, and in a similar sort of way, I think, you know, it was never sort of that simple that um, Roman citizenship was automatically granted um, to all the peoples they conquered. Like, one of the points of contention in, like, the social wars, for example, or, you know, there's sort of a question over whether they were fighting, whether the Latins were fighting because they wanted full citizenship mm -hmm. or because they didn't want full citizenship. <laughs> right. And then even... Right, when, because citizenship came with these responsibilities right. to then, you know, right. provide conscripts and pay taxes right. and whatever else. And also, like, the way voting was done in the city, like, you had to vote in Rome. You had to physically go to Rome to vote. So, you know, a lot of the sort of voting rights were functionally meaningless for a lot of the sort of a lot of the people that that right was extended to because they wouldn't have had the means or the wherewithal to get to Rome to vote and to exercise, you know, sort of political power. Right. Right. Um, Although citizenship means citizenship does have other benefits, right? That sure. you, you have protection in certain legal situations sure. um, in a way that you just aren't offered that protection otherwise. Sure. She, she makes the point that it's incredibly ethnically diverse and, she it's it's almost interesting that we don't know what race anybody really was because we just don't like they just don't sure. talk about it so there wasn't you know, really a concept at the time right yeah. so there's you know they're pretty closely linked with a lot of north africa right carthage is right. in north africa uh there are some emperors that come from north africa and right. you know they were probably you know what we would now call black uh yeah. but just nobody commented on it because it wasn't it wasn't a category they thought about they thought about where you came from but that was far more important. And then beyond that, you're a Roman citizen. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, likewise, like slavery, you know, unlike the United States, it wasn't linked to a, you know, particular race of people. It was, you know, anybody could be a slave. Um, you're saying unlike the United States, yeah. Unlike the United States, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the book ends with Caracula giving citizenship to everybody. And she, like, sort Although, of hints at how that, like, changes Roman society. But then... Sure. The book ends, and so we don't really get that deep yeah. into it. And she also, you know, points out that, um, you know, by extending citizenship to everyone, it also made it, like, in a certain sense, meaningless. And that there, she doesn't, you know, really explain it fully, but, you know, she points to there being a sort of solidification of, a, between, like, I can't remember what the Latin words are, but it's like, the, the better off, the more elite, versus the less well off, the less elite. 
Right, right. Uh, so they everybody gets citizenship, but then they work hard to stratify citizenship. Right, so you still right, have these right. layers. Yeah, and the, the I mean the granting of citizenship and that evolution of time, I think, is related to what happens with conscription. That at first you have to be she calls them knights. I don't, I don't remember what their what their Latin term is, uh, but you have to be you know a certain level of Roman society at first in order to enroll in the army. But yeah. not anyone could join the legions initially. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah, there was there was a certain set of people, and then because she talks about how Marius is the first to allow anybody in, and that's his way of raising a huge number of troops right. uh, in his in his wars. So when he offers anyone <clears throat> the ability to enroll in the army, it gets him a larger army, but it also makes those people dependent on their leaders because they're not independently wealthy anymore, and so they rely on whoever's leading their army to you know, get them enough money to live the rest of their lives after they retire. Um, and so she talks about how this sets up the situation where Julius Caesar can like march on Rome and, you know, you've got a set, like Pompey has his own army, Caesar has his own army. And it's because each of them uh, has a set of troops that are loyal only to them. And it kind of cuts out their loyalty to the state as a whole, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, she sort of talks about the, the difference between Sola and Caesar. And Sola was sort of a predecessor to Caesar in that he, he also marched on Rome and took power for himself for a period of time, although he then did relinquish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of Sola, I think it was all the, all but one of his officers refused to follow him into the right. city. Versus with Caesar, <laughs> everyone followed him except right. for one. right. Yeah, there's this sense of, yeah, there's this loyalty that they build up. And I'm, I imagine there might be some other aspects to that loyalty, but it makes sense that the primary driver could be that this guy, like this guy is responsible for your well-being and it is his success that determines your success in sure. the short term and the long term. Yeah, and so you yeah, become pretty, yeah. pretty committed. And so yeah. if he, you know, becomes emperor of Rome, that would be a great thing for you. Right. Um, and then it's interesting that this ends as well, that, you know, Probably because this this dynamic became apparent, uh, the Emperor Augustus creates a public pension for all soldiers. So then the state is supplying their uh, you know means for living at the end of their lives, and they no longer need to support any particular leader. I mean, if anything, they might be uh, disincentivized because they would lose their pension if they fought against the state and didn't win. Yeah, I think it, it, it also it goes along with the sort of the end of the um, uh, the end of triumphs and uh, mm-hmm. the end of sort of um, consuls competing with each other for you know military valor. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It, it started to feel like the rise of the emperors was an. It felt like there was an absence of any kind of executive function, and obviously this is a very modern notion of government. But uh, sure. you well, know, they... except for except for the consul, the consuls. Yeah. And and there are like periods in Roman history where they're voted like basically sole, you know, sole power to sure do what, if, if, if they need to do if they're in a war, right? You give them a dictatorship, yeah. but um, I mean, I, it's still like not clear to me like how sort of minor laws are enforced. I mean, she talks about how Rome has ballooned to this gigantic metropolis and it does not have a police force. There is no one, you know, like there, there's no fire department, right? Like if fires happen, she's like, you just kind of like. Basically, you, like, destroy the houses next to the one that's burning so that it doesn't spread. And that's just, like, kind of you and your neighbors doing that. Uh, and so there's a there's a way in which – and she, she does talk about this explicitly as well, that 
it seems like Rome outgrows its institutions that, you know, it had these Republican institutions that were pretty effective for like a mid-sized country, but it just keeps expanding, keeps taking over territory, and they're no longer able to function and govern things at that level. Um, and then the emperors come along. It seems like the emperors are more successful in, in governing at that level, that they build up a really big bureaucracy because it's one guy who's there, you know, in power for a long period of time. So he has all these slaves and they build all these systems to, uh, to accommodate the different aspects of administration. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess you do sort of get the sense that like, um, you know, like, uh, I don't have a problem, but, uh, one of the issues in like the Republic, the, the period of the Republic for like the, uh, sort of colonial administration was that, um, the people sent out to sort of be the governor of a province were often, um, you know, incentivized to get as much out of the province as possible. Um, yeah. And that seems to be, you know, somewhat less of a problem when you reach the imperial period. And there's sort of more, more like you said, more of a built-up bureaucracy and sort of more direct contact between the the governors um, and, the, and the emperor. Like between yeah. uh, pl- Pliny, or yeah, is it Pliny? I think uh-huh. it's, yeah, it's Pliny. Pliny and Tiberius, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, because he, there's one guy who, you know, the buck stops with him in a way that just wasn't true before. And so he provides oversight of versus like the, the period of like Cicero and, you know, Cicero talks about, you know, and like, like Brutus, for example, Brutus had like a reputation for having been like a real shitty governor. (laughs) Right. Who was that? Right. But there's like not much much oversight. Yeah. There are like 50, you know, a hundred senators. Like it's not really their job to, Like, like, there's no, nobody whose job it is to take care of those kinds yeah. of problems. Yeah, I do think, yeah, there's a definite sense in which, like, leading up to the period of, like, uh, Caesar and then Augustus and the, the sort of dissolution of the Republic, where the the institutions of the Republic really aren't fit to purpose or, you know, are not keeping up with the, with the size of Rome and the problems. And you see that in the reforms of, like, um, what is it, Gaius? you know, things like the distribution of grain and stuff mm-hmm. like that, where he's sort of attempting to make these sort of popular efforts, but then, you know, it's continually shut out by the more conservative, um, yeah, by the more conservative elements of the Republic. Yeah. I thought, I thought this, this idea was one of the most interesting to me was the idea that, um, men who courted popular favor and wanted to reform things, were seen as potential despots and tyrants. Um, and like everyone was very suspicious of reformers and the, and the, and that the people that we think of as, you know, sort of bad emperors and tyrants were people who wanted to do land reform, whatever else. And there's this weird, I mean, it just kind of flips things on its head compared to how we think about them. Right. Cause it used to be yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this gets to like the story that she tells at the beginning of the book, um, with the, the Catalan conspiracy between, you know, mm-hmm. Catalan and Cicero, there's, there's a way of telling that story in which, you know, Catalan was kind of a disaffected, uh, Senator had been trying to become a consul. And like one of his programs was potentially for like debt relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like evidence that there was like a credit crunch that like people were suffering and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And the, the forces like arrayed against him, you know, Cicero, for example, they're they're dead set against like any sort of debt relief or any um, you know yeah. reapportionment of wealth or you know things like that. It's very you know kind of conservative. Um, 
And yeah. because Cicero comes out on top of that exchange, you know, he gets to tell his version of that story and, you know, paint, uh, you know, Catiline as a, uh, you know, sort of bloodthirsty villain uh, yeah. who would have, you know, wanted to march on the city and, you know, burn it down if it came down to it. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great way of, of her doing kind of like a Straussian reading of Cicero and thinking about like, okay, like what is the true story here underneath uh, you know, what his version is. And it is, it is just, yeah, it's, it's strange that these guys are proposing what we think of as progressive reforms. Um, but they are also very anti-democratic and I mean, it is, it is populist in, in a way that we, you know, does feel relevant to some contemporary political debates that there are these guys who want to get into power and they're offering people, you know, yeah, land reform, debt relief, free food, whatever it is, they're, they're offering these programs that would genuinely benefit a whole lot of people. Now, whether it's sustainable and good for the state as a whole is a separate conversation. Um, but they're offering to help people out in exchange for getting power. And the dominant narrative from Rome is that, like, that's a bad thing. And that, like, destroyed the republic and these guys are, are bad. Uh, and we should have kept the people down and kept our republican institutions. Sure. Yeah, the the other thing that's interesting is how she talks about how the reformers never position themselves as reformers. They do want to institute land reform or debt relief, but they will always rhetorically position it as a return to something prior. They would say, oh, you know, 300 years ago or in the original version of Rome, we used to do this thing and we've gotten away from that and we need to get back to that. And the way to do that is through this land reform or debt relief or whatever it is. But they claim to be kind of reviving old principles. So it's like both of them are trying to be conservative because that is the only acceptable position. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, the debate is just about who's sort of more authentically Roman as opposed to like who is, I don't know. I mean, m modern debates are often almost couched in different terms about, you know, change is good and which direction should we change. So the, yeah, the that final like point on like despotic emperors and institutions is that she tries to make a really big point of not focusing on individual emperors. They're like, there's this classic version of Roman history. That's like yeah. Caligula I mean, was this crazy guy. You wouldn't yeah. believe all the stuff he did. And like Nero, he like tried to do this and did that. Yeah. And like incest and, torturing people and whatever it is yeah i mean she the way she tells it is a lot of it goes back to gibbon's sort of rise and fall of rome and the way in which he sort of painted in broad strokes that oh you had these you had these good emperors and you had these bad emperors mm -hmm. you know sort of deal yeah and i think i mean I, I think even before that the one of the dominant forms of writing history in ancient rome was to write biographies right that mm -hmm. that that was you know people would compile these biographies of emperors or of famous people or whatever it was. And so there was a lot of focus on the personal lives of the guy at the top. And yeah, things like Plutarch's lives, which were like a comparison between like a figure from ancient Greece, a figure from ancient Rome. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's just like all this emphasis. And I think, I mean, part of it is that it's just entertaining. Like, you know, it's interesting to read about these crazy guys doing crazy things. Um, and her point is that, you know, maybe it's like, yeah, a little, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It's not quite voyeuristic, but like we're, we're, we're getting caught up in the entertainment and, and, and missing the point. But then also, uh, it is just wrong about how important these individual emperors are. And she says to the average Roman, whether you were, you know, under living under one emperor or another emperor, it didn't really make a difference. 
uh, like what made more of a difference was how the institutions were set up and how they were run because there was more continuity and similarity between them than there was differences. And like whether they were sleeping with particular people or wanted to make a horse console or like whatever it was, like didn't generally have a major impact uh, on the empire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, her her statement about that is that the, the qualities and the characteristics of individual emperors did not matter much to the individual inhabitants of the empire. Um, and again, she, she points out the ways in which, um, you know, she takes two, um, two emperors, Gaius Caligula um, and Nero, as like examples of, you know, these are usually thought of as being really bad emperors. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the case of Caligula, she says that, well, you know, one of the reasons we think of him as being a bad empire emperor is because he was vilified by his successor, Claudius. Right. And that, you know, she has, it's, there's a question of, she says, Gaius may have been assassinated because he was a monster, but it is equally possible that he was made into a monster because he was assassinated. Yeah, uh-huh. she she points out this interesting pattern where all the emperors who were really bad, like Caligula, get assassinated, right. and then all the and emperors all the emperors die in their beds. Right, which I mean, there are two explanations there. One <laughs> is that, like, of course, all the bad guys were so bad we had to get rid of them. But like, the alternative explanation is like, well, all the bad guys had people like clearly had enemies, and so they could have been just normal guys, and their enemies then, you know, retrospectively make them out to be as terrible as possible. Um, and, you know, I mean, a lot of what they did does seem so outlandish that it it, it seems reasonable to say that it, it was exaggerated. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's something that I do, I do just in general like about her telling of Roman history. Because, you know, I think um, it would be easy to sort of get bogged down into the, the, de- the individual details of, like, the... Um, there's like 14 emperors that rule for like about the first 200 years of the mm-hmm. empire in that sort of what's thought of as being the sort of more stable period of the empire. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's probably true that, you know, for an individual Roman, it just didn't matter that much who was emperor to your sort of daily life. Yeah, and I mean, it makes me think how true this is for our own time that, you know, there's a lot of focus on whoever's in charge at the very top of a particular organization or a country. Um, and we, you know, sort of define eras as like, oh, this was the, you know, well, during Bush, like during Obama, like this is what happened. When really there are a whole bunch of other players that are influencing things. And what matters more is probably the like institutional structure of things. And it makes more sense to talk about, well, during the era of you know, the Department of Homeland Security, like pre, like pre-DHS, post-DHS is maybe, I mean, I don't actually know, but it could be that that's a bigger difference than, you yeah, know, pre-Obama, sort of like, post-Obama like, or something. Like post the 2008 cr- crash and, you know, pre the 2008 crash, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like that's probably a better way of framing history than uh, the presidency of Barack Obama versus the presidency of George Bush. Yeah, or even I mean, I mean, even just there are other players that you know, like Mitch McConnell is sure. a, yeah, a big he's player, always around, yeah. and and his influence in the long run, or you know, the chairman of the Fed, or you know, there's debates about who's the most influential, and the answer is probably like focusing on any individual in their biography is like not actually you know not that helpful for understanding sure. a particular era. Yeah, I think it's comparable to the way in which. Uh, it's easy to sort of like, for example, during during Trump's presidency, 
it was easy to sort of get wrapped up in the day-to-day story of, you know, what was the most recent outrageous thing Trump had done, right? Right, right. To the exclusion of everything else. Um, <laughs> I think in a similar way, like, it would be easy to look back on Roman history and get too bogged down into, you know, what were the supposedly crazy things that Caligula did during yeah. his time as emperor. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that I think is worth talking about is this idea of Roman Romans being the, their best critics <laughs> or their more sort of cogent critics. Mm, yeah. Basically, the idea, right, is that the most cogent critiques of sort of Roman imperial overreach uh, often came from Romans themselves. You know, she points, for example, she points to the example of Tacitus and Tacitus wrote that, you know, they, uh, what is it, they, they make a desert and call it peace, right? Yeah. Um, and it's in reference to, like, the the revolt of uh, the Britons and sort of the, you know, like, Buduica and stuff like that. Yeah, the, like, heavy-handed uh, response. Right. To, to me, that was, it was a good reminder that Rome is not monolithic, which if you spend, you know, more right. than five seconds thinking about it, should be obvious. But it's oftentimes we think about, oh, here's what Romans think about this. And here's how Romans are. And, you know, they were very militaristic and they always wanted to expand. And, like, that is true of a good chunk of them because they obviously did those things. But like any, you know, robust society, they had, yeah, they had a lot of critics. And there were people internally who were anti-imperialist. Um, you know, as, as modern as that sounds, as though, yeah. Yeah, like, resisting imperialism is... I certainly like they saw the excesses of Roman power and were like, you know, maybe this isn't such a great thing. Um, yeah, or maybe, you know, we, we're not always the goodies of, of history. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think to me, that's that's one of the most uh, not relatable, but, you know, there's a similar way where, you know, if you want to criticize the United States as an American, um, you know, there's a whole sort of section of, I don't know, the public, public opinion that's like, you know, don't, don't criticize the United States. Yeah. You know, sort of like the right or wrong, you know, my country above all others. Sort of right. Thing. Yeah. There is, there's a strain of patriotism that, uh, right. It, or a strain of patriotism that defines patriotism as like, you never question, you know, your country or its motives or, um, its actions around the world. Uh, yeah. And it's a similar sort of way with, you know, the way in which Romans approached um, what their country was doing abroad or, you know, even internally. Did you uh, catch that uh, Cicero had uh, slaves that were readers? <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah, their full-time part... job was reading? Yeah, I guess, or I don't know. That's how they were listed. Definitely could be worse. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's kind of one of her arguments about slavery. It's that, I mean, A, that it was, like, much more varied than you might think. Right. Their right. way of thinking about slavery is not our way of thinking about slavery. Although, I don't know, I think it's easy, it could be easy to, like, think, well, oh, well, then Roman slavery wasn't that bad, really, right? <laughs> um, I mean, on average, I think it was not as bad as American sure. slavery. No, I think I think that is true. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it was good. Yeah, and well, also she doesn't spend a lot of time like discussing like you know what was slavery like if you were in a freaking you know silver mine in Spain or something. Yeah, like that. she like talks about it briefly, but like right. 
we just it's don't like, know oh, by, by the yet. way there were like 40,000 people right like there was here, <laughs> we're working here's, in the silver mines right, and here's, like changing here's, the climate here's, here's the tomb of a child who is like <laughs> at four years old was carrying his tools into the mine yeah that's right yeah yeah well that is an interesting thing like she does make that point that like and this is sort of like what we talked about with um the sort of 16th century mindset in the um, Cromwell trilogy mm-hmm. and how it can be difficult to sort of get into that mindset. It's a it's similar to the point that she makes about how, you know, Roman history is, it's, it's easy to sort of fall into thinking, oh, you know, I can sort of identify with these figures, with, 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 with the problems that they're dealing with, with the way they express, you know, their you know, what, what problems they're having, mm-hmm. what they're struggling with, or, you know, whatever like that, um, you know, Cicero's complaints, things like that. But, you know, it's also a world in which, you know, it was, like, very common and, like, not unacceptable to, you know, expose children, you know. Right. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, infanticide was a normal part of life. Right, right, and a whole other, you know, host of reasons that, like, or a host of things that made, you know, that we would say, oh, geez, you know, geez, too, so... It's that same sort of, I feel like it's that same sort of dynamic where, like, if you're, you know, it could be easy to sort of start identifying with or thinking that you can really understand these figures from, you know, 2,000 years ago and their society. But, you know, then you get a glimpse of, you know, something that's like, oh, this is not the 21st century, I guess. Yeah. What do you think about this idea of libertas? That's something that she talks about. Oh um, yeah, they're libertas versus Athenian democracy. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I think she, I mean, we take for granted that there are all these things that libertas, like that liberty includes, that it's tied up with something like democracy. Um, that actually isn't necessarily the case, and that they, yeah, they were very concerned about having their like individual freedoms and rights, but didn't really care about participation in the political process sure and or equality right you know like we think of yeah all these you know liberty fraternity equality all the all these things as being inextricably linked and they're not inextricable right Uh, and so yeah i thought i thought that was interesting to think about yeah you know one of the books i've been reading for a while now is uh the rise of american democracy by uh, sean willens yeah it's a book that it sort of charts the progress of our democracy from the founding to um the time of lincoln Mm. um it's just a very detailed uh you know going through of well in this in this particular state you had these rights at this time you know these people could vote these people couldn't vote Mm. um and the whole story is like you know gradually those rights expand and expand and expand until like by the time of the civil war you know basically all you know, it's still restricted, you know, voting, for example, is still restricted, obviously, to, to white males, but, you know, there are no, like, property qualifications and things like that. Right. I haven't actually gotten to that point in the book, but there's, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, very individual minutiae, right, going by state by state, like, you know, this is the way that uh, Connecticut approached expanding the vote versus New York versus, hmm. you know, South Carolina. Um, it's just interesting to think about, like, I don't know, the things that we take for granted, right, in the 21st century or, like, that we sort of think are, like, inextricable from American democracy. It's the point being that, you know, it wasn't a very democratic country. Right. <laughs> at the founding of the republic, right? 
Yeah. And in a not like totally dissimilar way from like Roman history where, um, I mean, obviously Republic versus democracy, but I mean, we're a Republic too, I guess, but, uh, you know, I think it's a, I don't know, it's another sort of resonance with, with, uh, with our history is like this idea of, you know, who gets to participate in, um, in, in our democracy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, thinking also about how we try to project our values to other countries, it's hard for us to grasp sometimes that, like, when we want to advocate for particular things, like, that's not what everybody wants. I mean, one of the things that's striking uh, is that, you know, reading about Russia, that a lot of the people there seem to not care that much about their level of participation in the political process, and to some degree, even their political rights they care a lot about having, you know, quality of life and mm-hmm. that being able to have a steady job um, and, you know, having like a good life in a material sense is really important to them. But if that means having, you know, someone who's somewhat autocratic in charge and preventing them from, you know, having dissenting radio stations like that, I think is less troubling for them than it might be for Americans just because of different value systems. And it's hard for us to grasp that, that, yeah. It's, it's hard to appreciate different value systems <laughs> and, and especially the Roman one where they have part of our values and not all of them that like Liberty is very important to them. You know, like they would have probably really appreciated the bill of rights, but like the rest of the constitution is like, yeah, you know, don't need it. Right. Yeah. Uh, honestly, what I was thinking about when you first, when you started that thought is, you know, there's also this idea of like, you know, the Romans didn't have like a particularly heavy footprint anywhere. Or like, I don't know, that's not, that's not quite the right way to put it, but it's like, you know, she makes... They the govern with a light touch, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. She makes the point of like, you know, their idea of, you know, I don't know, conquest, but like uh, controlling an area wasn't necessarily to change all the customs of that area or, you know, change their religion or, you know, change even their like form of government, you know, or whatever, yeah. you know, the sort of... Um, you know, if anything, they relied on having like an elite group within societies that were, you know, working with them and participating with them, um, in governance. Um, yeah, I, I think. And I don't know, like you could draw an interesting contrast to say, (laughs) you know, the Iraq war, right. And that sort of period in American history where we had this idea, or at least the, the Bush administration had this idea that, well, you know, We'll take down Saddam and we'll basically put in an American style democracy. Iraqis are going to love it um, and totally embrace it. And it will be good, you know, for everybody all the way around. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, I guess maybe kind of forgetting that lesson that, like, um, I don't know, what are the things that made Rome so successful in sort of expanding its know, influence and control around the world was that it didn't necessarily come down with a heavy hand on, you know, every population or every group of people or, you know. Right. Yeah. The, the extent to which empires try to export their culture or values is yeah, very different. And I mean, I would argue that it is a like later version of Christianity that leads to the idea that when you take over a territory, you need to change them uh, and like bring, you know, save them or bring them to like your level of, quote unquote civilization or, or whatever it is that, I mean, like the Ottoman empire, I think was pretty similar to the Roman empire in that they would take over places and didn't care a whole lot about what religious practices happened right. or, uh, you know, 
sort of how local governance was handled as long as, you know, taxes were levied and, and they got their cut and, you know, military and whatever else. But yeah, I think there's this sort of strain of thinking that like once like, you know, the Ottoman Empire breaks up, the Austrian Empire breaks up, things like that, that actually leads to a lot more sort of intercommunal violence and ethnic sort of violence that was sort of tamped down by having a, uh, you know, an empire where, you know, there were multiple sort of ethnic or language groups, you know, participating in sort of one you know, a centralized government function. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even, I mean, yeah, even just having empires that are in, right. uh, or sort of have like a vested interest in like, uh, <laughs> you know, not sort of exploiting those sort of, you know, divisions between people, um, that like a newly independent country might have. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, even thinking of like the Spanish in Latin America or in the Philippines or thinking of, uh, the British in India. I mean, there's this whole kind of campaign of trying to, yeah, alter the people who were taken over. Uh, and this, this organically happens with the Romans, right? Like, like people in elite levels of society in Britain started adopting Roman customs. They started taking baths and, you know, wearing different things and eating different things, but there's no sense that it was imposed by the Romans. The Romans didn't particularly care. It was just a status symbol for the locals. But, you know, when, when, when the British take over India, there is like a whole, you know, there's a concerted campaign to get people to speak English and to teach them things and to educate them uh, and to, you know, like it is it is a deliberate part of their program to adjust how everyday people live their lives. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there was any, you know, sort of similar campaign to like teach the, no, to teach the, Brum, the, the Britain's Latin. Right. Right. Make them uh, adopt the Olympian pantheon or something like that. Right. And I think, I think, I, I think it does originate in, uh, you know, these kind of medieval Christian ideas of, well, this, this relates to another book that I've been reading, but that there was a turning point where um, the elites in European society and in the church wanted to tr start enforcing a higher level of religiosity on the masses and wanted them to internalize certain aspects of Christian worship and Christian practice in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and that this notion of like ordering society and controlling society and, um, yeah, Im improving people that led to, you know, modern public education and various things that we take for granted as good things now, um, were, yeah, were, I mean, have their bad side and also, yeah, originating this like very particular moment in time. Well, bo books sure are dope. That's all I've got to say. You know, they got yeah. interesting things to tell us about shit and stuff like that. Yeah. That's my basic take. Yeah, could, couldn't have said it better myself. Maybe a, a way to end this is like at the very end of her book, she has this, you know, in the epilogue, she talks about how, you know, when she was younger, um, she did kind of buy into this notion that like, um, the value in studying the classics or, you know, studying the ancient Romans, maybe the ancient Greeks too, um, would be that, you know, you would learn, learn things to sort of apply to, to contemporary life mm -hmm. and that you could look to these ancient figures as being, I don't know, you know, sort of models, um, for, you know, various aspects, you know, rhetoric or, you know, I don't know, critical thinking maybe, or I don't know, you know, whatever, um, I mean, like, even, like, even, you know, even what we've been talking about to some degree that, you know, their extension of citizenship or their political structures 
or the fall of the Roman Empire and why that was have lessons for us. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but, you know, she ends the book with saying that, you know, oh, that's, you know, she now thinks that's all just kind of garbage and that, <laughs> you know, she says expressly that w- we don't have much to learn from the ancient Romans or any other ancients. You know, I think her argument is that uh, the, the value in, in studying, you know, ancient Rome and maybe other some a- other ancient societies, you know, can be that, you know, they can help you sort of understand aspects of contemporary life better or to think more deeply about them. Um, but they're in no way a sort of guide for, you know, how you as an individual living in the 21st century should live. Um, and there basically are no, like, you know, I don't know, ancient Roman uh, role models that, you know, you should seek to emulate, um, which is, I think, sort of the way in which you know, Roman history or, you know, classical, you know, classical history or classical thought was kind of taught. And, you know, going back to Gibbon, you know, he had this idea that, well, it sure would have been nice to have lived, you know, during the, the reign of the good empires because that was really the, the dopest time upon earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, her, her, I think her part of her project is to sort of get us to get away from that sort of thing. Yeah, and instead, I mean, what she says is, I'm more and more convinced that we have an enormous amount to learn as much about ourselves as about the past by engaging with the history of Romans, their poetry and prose, their controversies and arguments. That, yeah, we can't learn things directly. We can't say, oh, like, they did this, ergo, we should right. do that, or we should not do that. Right. But that by by engaging with them and thinking about them, we can reflect on our own ways of conceptualizing some of these same things that they grappled with. Um and that, yeah, thinking about them in different contexts can give us new perspectives that can be helpful. Yeah. So overall, I think great book. I would definitely recommend. Uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, like, I think it can be challenging to find books that in a single volume cover a good chunk of history. Uh, and this is good in that it's not gigantic, but you can read it and really get a sense for Rome uh, and feel like you've learned a lot about the history and, and uh, you know the nature of Rome and its significance. Alright. Yeah, watch us. We'll only have like 40 minutes of this recording. That'd oh my gosh. That'd be pretty cool. Unacceptable. <laughs>